In his prime, he was what Hollywood studios feared the most, a multi-hyphenate, an actor, writer, producer and director. More than that, his films repeatedly hit the golden triangle. Box office success, critical acclaim and the respect of his peers. An Oscar winner, he also won Grammys, Emmys, WGAs and BAFTAs. Review after review raved about his incredible talent and in one year alone, two of his films topped the box office charts. I'm talking about Mel Brooks. Springtime for Hitler and Germany. He rode a blazing saddle. He wore a shining star. If you're blue and you don't know where to go to, why don't you go where fashion sits? Back in the late 1970s, Brooks had two talented executives working with him, Jonathan Sanger and Stuart Kornfeld. Sanger and Kornfeld were in the habit of doing what executives working for big studios do far too seldom. They went to the cinema. Not just any cinema. They went to what used to be called a midnight theatre, a cinema that specialised in B-movies and underground pictures. One midnight screening they came across was a picture which, from word of mouth, you would not have expected anyone to go and see. The critics had been dismissive, if not downright hostile, the New York Times considering it murkily pretentious, while Variety magazine described it as an exercise in sickening bad taste. Hardly the sort of reviews a first-time director could have hoped for, especially considering he had taken five years to complete it. The first-time director was David Lynch, and his film was Eraserhead. It told the story of a young man, deeply troubled by the fact that his girlfriend had given birth to a lizard-like creature. That was not the only oddity in the film. Elsewhere, a woman lived inside a radiator, and a severely scarred man generated sparks by operating a set of levers. The whole thing culminated with the young man figuratively losing his head, which was then picked up by a young boy on the street, who brought it to a pencil factory where it was used to make an eraser. Sanger and Kornfeld were so struck by Eraserhead, they insisted Brooks see it also. The second it was over, Brooks declared Lynch a madman and his film a masterpiece. Here is Brooks talking about the first time he met David Lynch. Came into the office. When he came in, I looked beyond him. I thought that maybe this kid that came in was a messenger or something because he wore a little leather jacket and, and he sat. And he had a lot of R's. He said, it's a pleasure to meet you, sir. A lot of R's, like a Midwestern kid. I expected the guy to have, like, Picasso, two eyes on one side of his nose. And here is a young uh, Charles Lindbergh. He looked just like Charles Lindbergh. So why did Brooks, Sanger and Kornfeld want to work with Lynch? Because they were developing a script called The Elephant Man, a story set in Victorian London about a man hideously disfigured by untreatable diseases and they were convinced that Lynch was the man to direct it. Here is Lynch recalling his first encounter with the project. I needed to see if there were any scripts out there that I could direct. So I called Stuart and I said, Stuart, do you know of any scripts that I could direct? And he said, David, I know of four scripts that you could direct. And he says, come to Nibbler's and I'll tell you. So we went to this uh, coffee shop, sat down, and before we even ordered, I said, Stuart, please tell me the names of these scripts. 
and Stuart said, okay, the first script is called The Elephant Man, and a bomb went off in my head. I said, that's it. The problem was that Brooks, Sanger, and Kornfeld had pitched The Elephant Man to every Hollywood studio, and while they all saw merit in the idea of the film, they didn't see any business in it. But, as per usual, the studio suggested if Brooks and his associates could get a famous actor involved, then perhaps they might, just might, change their minds. The trouble was that no actor in Hollywood would entertain the idea of playing the character. Why? The audience would only see the prosthetics specially designed to recreate the botched physicality of the title character. So in the end, and considering the fact that the movie was set in England, the producers decided the best thing to do was to hire almost exclusively English actors. And so, Anthony Hopkins, John Gielgud, Wendy Hiller and Freddie Jones were chosen. The only American actor was Anne Bancroft, who played a small but pivotal role. Here is John Hurt recounting the method by which he was selected for the title role. I was first involved with the whole, the whole business of the Elephant Man and, and, and everything to do with it by being asked to, to Mel Brooks' office. And it was clear that the people who were interviewing me were quite nervous. And it didn't occur to me, oh yes, and in front of me, right in front of me, was a huge kind of uh, drawing of John Merrick. And eventually it was suggested that this might be the person that I was to play. Now, to me, it, it didn't even occur to me. Although known today as John Merrick, he was in fact born Jason Merrick in 1862 to a working class family in Leicester. From an early age, Jason's body grew dreadfully estranged from what a human being was supposed to be. Rejected by his father and stepmother, he admitted himself to the city's workhouse and soon thereafter presented himself to showmen so that they could exhibit him as an oddity in return for money. In 1884, one such showman, Tom Norman, opened a gaff shop on London's Whitechapel Road where he charged the public two pence entry fee to see his display. One November afternoon, Dr. Frederick Treves, at the time the lecturer of anatomy at London's hospital, situated just across the street, walked in to view the latest curiosity. Writing some three decades later in his book, The Elephant Man and Other Reminiscences, here is how Treves recalled the moment. The showman, speaking as if to a dog, called out harshly, Stand up! The thing arose slowly and let the blanket that covered its head and back fall to the ground. There stood revealed the most disgusting specimen of humanity that I've ever seen. In the course of my profession, I had come upon lamentable deformities of the face due to injury or disease, as well as mutilations and contortions of the body depending upon like causes. But at no time had I met with such a degraded and perverted version of a human being as this lone figure displayed. Uh, I think I'll ask you a question and um, you shake your head like this for... Uh... Um, have you always been the way you are now? Are you in any pain? 
Are your parents still alive? Do you understand me? Your father, your mother, are they dead? Shreves' reaction was crucial, not only in terms of Merrick's remaining years, but also in understanding why Sanger, Kornfeld and Brooks regarded David Lynch as the ideal director for their film. Eraserhead was filled with such images, but never for one moment was the film disgusted by its own subject. Instead, it treated every person, however odd, with a respect and dignity uncommon in even the most mainstream of horror films. I'll return to that point in a moment, but for now, let us focus on one of the first decisions Lynch made, which was to film in black and white. Just as he had rejected colour for Eraserhead, Lynch decided that for The Elephant Man, black and white would not only quickly evoke the harsh industrialised Victorian London, but also minimise the shock of seeing Merrick's body in full colour. Going further, Lynch then encouraged that the moment of revealing Merrick's ruined body be delayed, gradually introducing us to him in shadow, half-shadows, silhouette, and finally in full form. For all that, Lynch contacted director of photography Freddie Francis, who had not only won an Oscar for Jack Cardiff's adaptation of D. H. Lawrence's Sons and Lovers, but had also lit The Innocents, Cardiff's chilling adaptation of Henry James's short story, The Turn of the Screw. Next, Lynch reunited with Alan Splett, the mastermind behind the sound design of a razorhead. However startling a razorhead may be to look at, what you hear is just as arresting, with each scene layered in with noises, domestic, natural and industrial, reimagining them in different speeds and directions, so they were at once faintly familiar yet strikingly strange. Alan Splett died in 1994, so here is Lynch talking about their collaboration. Sound is at least 50% of the picture. It's sound and picture working along together as, you know, this beautiful thing of cinema. And sounds can bridge the gap between sound effects and music. Sounds can be abstract effects. And so they open up a world and give a mood, just like music. So there's hard effects, there's abstract effects, and there's music. Um, the abstract effects are, you know, really where so much of the magic takes place. Al understood this 100%, and um, we would marching into the world of sound and find those things that supported the picture and magnified it. And the whole idea is the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. Another important talent behind the camera was makeup artist Christopher Tucker. Lynch had initially planned to devise the makeup himself, but Tucker's expertise proved crucial. Tucker's contribution cannot be underestimated, and although he didn't win an Oscar for the film, it was his work on The Elephant Man that finally convinced the Board of Governors to the Oscars that makeup was a category that deserved award recognition. A moment ago, I mentioned horror films. Lynch is regarded as a surrealist, but however disturbing and upsetting many moments in his films may be, they could never be described as horror films. On the contrary, they each eventually arrive upon transcendence, where fear gives way to empathy. What is an example of fear? When I am confronted by a person who has the power to inflict harm upon me. 
and what is an example of empathy. When I am confronted by someone I fear, only to discover that they are just as frightened of me as I am of them. At that moment, I experience empathy and the transformation fills me with hope that I might be able to help them. More than just transformative, that is the transcendent premise on which the elephant man rests. Its focus is on the monster's fear. Pay close attention and take note of the frequency with which the film gives us images within images. Faces within faces, portraits and pictures. Mirrors, if you will. In this way, The Elephant Man proves that any great work of art is not exclusively about its subject, but also about the viewer. Art invites the viewers, or listeners or readers, to seek themselves out in the work. And if you can't find yourself in The Elephant Man, believe me, you're either incredibly vain or you're not looking hard enough 